0: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God!
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
1: Jake, did it. what? A struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. (laughs) All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a method of communication. This is something you can listen to while in transit. Thanks for uh, being here for this, the very first episode of 2014. Happy New Year. I'm Brad Listy, reporting to you from uh, beautiful and scenic Los Angeles, California. How are you feeling? First day of the year. First day of the new year. Are you hungover? Did you go out uh, last night? Did you make bad decisions? Uh, What's happening? Are you making the walk of shame right now as you hear this? As uh, many of you may know, I'm fascinated by how and where people listen to this program. Uh, It's fun to get a visual on that. Some sort of visual idea of how this show and where this show is being listened to. Uh, For example, are you in your car? Are you in a forest? Uh, are you, uh, on the African, uh, Velt? Is that a thing? Isn't that a thing? The African Velt? Where are you? Are you in a uh, strange neighborhood walking home with a terrible hangover after an ill-advised uh, tryst with a complete stranger? I feel like I need to know these things. And, uh, I can't, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that one would listen to, uh, this or, or maybe any podcast in the immediate wake Of a one night stand. (laughs) Has that ever happened? That seems like an unorthodox transition to make. Uh, But of course, nature provides for uh, infinite possibilities. And with that in mind, and because I've been getting a lot of good mail lately, I thought I would start today, I thought I would start the new year uh, by reading some of your letters. The first of which comes from a listener uh, in Colombia, South America. His name is Andres. Is that how you pronounce it? Andres or Andre? Uh, Here's what he says. Hi, Brad. I just wanted to say thank you. I've been binge listening to your show ever since a long relationship I was in abruptly and inexplicably, from my point of view, ended last month. The healing process feels like that first grade math problem with the snail that climbs up a wall X meters and then slides down Y meters and then climbs up a wall Z meters and so on. And then you have to figure out where it is in relation to the floor. But no one actually cares where the little guy was going, which I guess is more relevant in my case. Compulsive listening to your interviews has helped, perhaps in a similar way in which people allow drugs and booze to quote-unquote help under such circumstances. I guess what I'm saying is that your show is comparable to drugs and booze, though not as physically and mentally detrimental and not as conducive to getting laid. (laughs) I would argue that, but, uh, but what it is, is a meaningful and inspiring distraction. It also helps me write more. If you have any tips regarding this kind of stuff, they'd be highly appreciated. I hope my message is not too mopey uh, mopey and anti-festive. Sorry. Keep up the great work. All the best for next year. Andres. Okay. Uh, Andres, thanks for writing. Thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. And I'm sorry to hear about your relationship. That sucks. Uh, As for advice, you know, I'm no expert. I don't know if this is my purview, uh, relationship advice. Uh, I think what I would say is what most people would say. I think time is really the only antidote to what you're feeling. Time has to do its thing, especially if you're, you know, truly heartbroken and devastated. You know, time has to elapse and you have to allow for that. No shortcuts. Though, you know, I also believe that getting back out there and being proactive and meeting people and kind of forcing yourself to go on dates uh, isn't the worst idea. You know, sometime soon. As soon as you can muster it. Because, you know, life goes on. It goes on. I think Robert Frost said that. They asked him, like, what do you know about life after all these years? And he just said, like, it goes on. Isn't that a thing? Am I recalling that correctly? So my point is you have to go on. And if that means you go on a few awkward dates or you hook up with a couple of people who don't wind up being a good fit or, you know, you make out with someone and then uh, immediately start sobbing and talking about your ex, uh, that's life. Do you guys hear that? <laughs> there, There is some strange animal that lives in our wall. So, uh, back to Andres, your relationship. Uh, this is a transitional period for you, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, it can be a fertile period. It can be a transformational period. If only you will let it, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm just repeating phrases that I think I might've heard at some point, uh, in my life on television, like on Oprah or something. So, uh, anyhow, thank you for writing Andres. And uh, best of luck to you in 2014 and beyond. So let me do one more, and then we, uh, we, should, you know, we should get started with today's guest. This uh, email comes from a listener named Marie, who writes, Hi Brad, I was just listening to your discussion with Olivia Lang at the point where you're thinking about other occupations that seem to be common to writers, the profession of doctor, is mentioned, but you both draw a blank at specific names. I can think of four pretty easily who were doctors, though I'm not sure if those still living are actually practicing medicine anymore. The four that I thought of are William, Car- uh, William Carlos Williams, Ethan Kanan, Abraham Verghese, and Khaled Hosseini. Am I pronouncing these right? Uh, I'm sure there are more, and it bugs me that I can that I can only think of four, but now I'm wondering... Are there any female uh, medical doctors who have had successful writing careers? This isn't really a question for you, Brad. Just me thinking out loud, so to speak. Your reading of select Disney on ice tweets made me laugh. Thank you. I enjoy the show. Happy holidays to you and your family, Marie. So thanks, Marie. That's an interesting question. And uh, I I actually just went online in a fit of uh, curiosity to see if I could uh, Google it. And, uh, there is a list on Wikipedia, believe it or not, of physicians who turned out to be authors, but in looking at it, uh, quickly, I don't see any big recognizable female names on there, which uh, seems a little bit depressing though. I should say, uh, that I could be missing someone. It's entirely possible. Or the, you know, this list is not complete and i should also say that uh, my friend lenore zion who has been a guest on this program is a psychiatrist who specializes in uh, sexual disorders what do you call them uh, paraphilias she's a paraphilia expert which i envy because uh, i imagine that it must give her uh, such rich insight into human behavior her daily uh, her daily work she deals with people you know who like to have sex with shoes And so on. (laughs) So there's one such author, if you're looking for one, Lenore Zion. And uh, if any of you out there listening uh, can think of other female authors who also happen to be medical doctors, please do email me uh, and let me know and uh, correct the record. And generally speaking, uh, if you guys would like to send word and let me know what you think of the show or uh, share your thoughts, otherwise you can do that by emailing me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com and uh, don't forget, you can also leave me a voicemail over at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. You just click on send voicemail over at the right side of the screen, and away you go. So, uh, the main event is now just uh, seconds away. Before I get there, uh, I want to ask you quickly for a small bit of help. Uh, here's the thing I need reviews on iTunes. Uh, can you please review this program on iTunes? It takes just a couple of minutes. Uh, Just open your iTunes, go find other people with Brad Listy in the podcast section, and rate and review the show. If you could please do that, uh, I would be enormously grateful. You would be my hero. You really would. Here's why it matters. Uh, It helps the show get good placement in the iTunes store, uh, which then helps it find new listeners. So if you have a couple of minutes and you're feeling uh, generous, I would be uh, much obliged a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is James Scott. His debut novel, The Kept, is available now from uh, Harper Books. It took him eight years to write it. Uh, He and I are going to talk all about that. And uh, now uh, the book is here. And it is generating buzz and winning uh, plaudits everywhere. So I'm very excited for James. Uh, Very good to have him here. And I think you're going to enjoy our talk. So here he is, folks. This is James Scott. And his new novel, his debut novel, once again, is called The Kept.
1: I am in Western Massachusetts. Um... I live just north of Northampton, and I'm in my office uh, looking out over our barn and our driveway and, um, you know, sitting amongst my books and my desk and all that stuff. So
0: Wait, you, have a, you have a barn?
1: We do. We rent our place, but there's a barn out back, a giant um, barn that is filled with batshit and old um, photographs and stuff. It's very creepy.
0: Okay, so old photographs of yours or just old photographs from, like, residents through the ages?
1: Resonance through the ages. I think that the guy who lived here before the people who rented it to us, um, I think that they just kind of threw all of his belongings into this barn. And he was a photographer, so there are all these old photographs from the war. And they're really, I mean, I'd love to go through them sometime, but they're also kind of uh, dirty. (laughs) So uh, not dirty as in... um, you know smutty nudity or anything not, yeah. not
0: that you know <laughs> that you know of not until you dig into the like, no the no not
1: that i don't know i haven't i haven't dug that far it's possible that they're
0: there <laughs> yeah you know it's funny because i lived uh for a summer i lived in this town called longmont colorado which makes an appearance incidentally mm-hmm. in uh on the road briefly uh but it's like not too far from boulder it's like a little bit you know it's in between denver and fort collins but it's kind of a weird town mm-hmm. or, or it was when i was uh there and, uh, it was like this house that my friend had bought and was renovating and was just empty for the summer. And, uh, the, pe- oh, yeah. the, the people who had lived there had lived in there for, I want to say like, you know, 60 years and then they got, yeah. old, they got old and died and then I had it. And so it it was me <laughs> in this like five bedroom house. And it was an old house that had like an old, like horse carriage stable type situation. Yeah. It was yep. very it felt very strange to live there. And I only had enough furniture for one room and it was like a four or five bedroom house. So
1: Did you get lots of writing done? Uh
0: I thought that I would, but no. I, I mean I did and I didn't. It was a weird summer. It was a, yeah. it was like a weird summer. I re- I remember I was going to like a uh, coffee shop in the neighborhood and um you know, trying to stay caffeinated because I was working all day and you know, there were all and these you- like goth teenagers who like I would see, they were like the only people that I became friendly with in the whole city <laughs> just because I would see them. But, you know, it was very strange and I had a typewriter. It was a very affected period of my life, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, well, probably it's one of those things I'm looking back on it, you know, influences, even if you don't realize it. You yeah. know
0: what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I'm, I was already thinking to myself, well, maybe one day James is going to wind up writing about this barn and these photographs and, maybe you'll have a character who's like a photographer somehow appear in one of your books. I mean, I guess that's,
1: yeah, I can't write about stuff when it's too close to me. You know, my book's had in upstate New York and I couldn't really write about it until I didn't live there anymore. Um, and yeah. had been away for long enough that I could see it clearly, you know?
0: No. Okay. So is that where you were raised?
1: Uh, yeah, I was raised in not far from here. And then when I was 10, my family moved to outside Albany, New York, um, which was very traumatic, I think, for most of us in the family.
0: Um, Why did you move? I was, I was,
1: uh, my dad got transferred. he's an accountant and um and he just had um, different clients that were in Albany. so so there we went,
0: yeah from no, a yeah.
1: very sort of idyllic town in Massachusetts to this sort of very different town outside Albany.
0: Okay, that's interesting because that uh, that the same thing happened to me more or less when I was like eleven, you know, and I remember it. Mm-hmm. It was it's you know. Did you totally freak out? Quietly, yeah. I mean, I didn't like I didn't yeah I, I didn't demonstrate. You know, there wasn't like uh, physical freakouts, but like internally, like it's like a it's kind it's like a that's a kind of death, you know, because your yeah. your entire life previously, all your friends, everything you know as a child goes away, and uh, you know, I remember feeling that very acutely. But I don't. Yeah, I. F- it's, I, f- I feel like when you try to talk to people about it in those terms, it can seem melodramatic. But I swear that's what it was like.
1: No, I don't think you can't go back and look at stuff in your childhood and imagine what it was like as an adult. Really, I remember thinking when I was a kid, like, like really thinking, don't forget what this feels like and how terrifying this is. You know, I mean, your experiences are so small and you know so little that the the smallest things can sort of knock you off stride. And then to think that. You go to this whole new place where the rules are totally different. You know, they played different sports, and they were, you know, told different jokes and wore different clothes. It was right, yeah, right, right, right. Really, sort of upended me.
0: Well, that's the thing. I went to this like, you know, I grew up in this like town in Wisconsin, a small town that had a general store. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't want to make it sound too like uh, Mayberry, but it was Andy like, Griffith. Yeah. yeah, but it was sort of like that, and it was like this really, you know, kind of a. I don't know, perfect little small town thing. And, uh, it was a Germanic, uh, Milwaukee has a lot of German immigrants. And so it was very Germanic and soccer was like, the, mm-hmm. soccer was the sport. And then I remember moving to Indiana and soccer, like was way down the pecking order. And, and like, you were sort of like, you know, quote unquote gay if you played soccer because yeah. you, you didn't play football. And, you know, I know it sounds stupid because it was, but when you're 11 years old, it was very disorienting. I was like, Oh my God, you know, I got to relearn everything.
1: And, uh, yeah, exactly. That, it was the same exact. I had the same exact experience because I moved from like a soccer, baseball, lacrosse when you got older, town to a football, basketball, hockey if you were into that sort of place. And it was just, it was really different. Just really different. Isn't it, um,
0: isn't it strange too? Like how when you're a, uh, a young boy, like how uh, I guess not all young boys are like this, but it's, sports are such like an identifier. Like I, I think like the pecking order socially. Uh at least one you know at my junior high in and, in and, and my town in Indiana, like my friends and I, as we got older, used to to joke around and say that like the pecking order was essentially established in elementary school based on like which boy could run the fastest you know like,
1: yeah. like your,
0: yeah. your foot speed determined like how much social currency you had. it was so strange
1: it is weird it is I mean I guess you have to you have to sort of pick something to go by, but then um and that's what's weird about moving at that time is that the pecking order is already starting to change for a variety of reasons, you know, like school, they're starting to track you for different stuff, and, and the sports change. And so to move um, when you sort of have one place in the pecking order to be completely reshuffled into new place is, um, it's strange. Man. And it, yeah, it really fucked me up, too. I mean, I was, I'd had panic attacks as a real small kid, but then uh, moving to Albany, it was, it was kind of got overwhelming
0: like Um, how how did they manifest what are we talking like this like where you have like chest pains or
1: um yeah chest pains and sort of dizziness and sort of an inability to uh to sort of think clearly um and for me a full-blown panic attack still is um it sort of goes from i i think i might be dying to i'm i'm pretty sure i'm dying to i'm definitely going to die (laughs) <laughs> you know, right now. And, uh, and that's, yeah, that's a full blown panic attack for me. And, uh, you know, they don't happen very often. It's the fear of having them that, that sort of makes them like, that's the worst part is, is the idea that they can sort of come out of nowhere and sort of strike like lightning. But, um, but I didn't have a name for what it was. I kind of thought that everyone had it and I just didn't deal with it as well as other people did, you know? Um, yeah, What? Well, what is, so is how, how like,
0: what is it? Like, I mean, uh, forgive me for not knowing, cause I think I have, you know, uh, a very, I've had very minor, mm-hmm. very, very minor panic attacks, nothing like that, you know, but like, what is it, you know, like it's just some sort of uh neurochemical thing or like, do you have a way of understanding it? That uh...
1: I think it's kind of like a fight or flight thing where your body starts um, reacting to something that's supposed to be in the environment, I guess, or that it believes is there and then it just sort of amps up and amps up and amps up and then sort of crescendos and then it kind of goes away. Um, and I think, you know, somewhere along the line, it must've been some sort of, um, protective thing. Right. Um, but obviously it's the opposite. It's very much the opposite. So, now.
0: so what do you think you're dying of when you're having a panic attack? Do you think you're dying of like a heart thing or is it something else?
1: Yeah, usually it's a heart attack. Yeah, usually okay. it's it's like my heart is beating so fast, there's no way that um, that it can sustain this, and it's just redlining, and, and it's going to it's gonna it's gonna blow <laughs> eventually. Right. Um, well,
0: I had. It's funny. And so I mean,
1: I'll, I pass out sometimes. Oh shit. Oh, yeah. That's um. Funny. Like Tony Soprano, you know.
0: Right. Oh, right, right, right. So that's like a yeah. Re- yeah. i mean, you know, and my mind is going back to a friend of mine that I had in Colorado who used to get panic attacks. And I feel like sort of an asshole because I think I, I didn't take her panic attack seriously because she was uh, yeah. living up in the mountains and she was smoking a ton of weed and she was selling weed. Yeah, it's not going to help. <laughs> and so I was just like, you know, quit smoking so much pot. No wonder you, you know, I kind of remember like, like teasing her a little bit and maybe that, maybe the two things were feeding one another, but I, I felt like she was living like this quote unquote criminal lifestyle. And then just smoking like this insanely potent <laughs> marijuana. Chronically, <laughs> uh,
1: my criminal, my criminal past is uh, is not very, um, is not very impressive. So I didn't have any of that. But definitely, you know, that kind of stuff like caffeine and drugs and um, sugar, if you're not eating right. And, um, you know, those things can really push it. And, um, and so I try to be good about that stuff. I exercise a lot specifically for that reason, um, almost to get so tired that there's no way my body could sort of muster up the energy to do it. Right. Um, but definitely there are people, it's like, it's an overused word, you know, it's, it's an overused term. I think a lot, I think a lot of people use the term without really knowing what it is. Uh It's kind of like migraines. You know, there are lots of people who say, oh, I got a migraine and they really mean they had a bad headache you're
0: like you're like yeah talk to me once you've passed out dude you know like (laughs)
1: yeah yeah are you dying are you sure you're dying Because if you're not then let's then you know take it down a notch
0: yeah exactly okay well so this must have uh because i feel like uh and of course hindsight's 2020 and and who really knows in the end but like i feel like the move that i made at that age uh was a a significant factor in making me bookish and turning me inward and making me writerly. Like, do you feel that that was like a formative thing for you too, uh, on on
1: the creative
0: side of your life?
1: It definitely was. I mean, I've, I wanted to be a writer long before that. Um, but yeah, it definitely sort of pushed me in and made me think about stuff a lot more. I think that it, um, in one way it, you know, the move kind of made me meaner. I think the kids in Albany were just sort of more, they were just meaner. I don't know how to describe I mean, it could have just be the age. You know, it just could be that 10, 11 kids really start sort of pushing buttons and seeing what they can get away with. But, um, but it seemed that way to me. And so, um, and I think that that increased my empathy, which I think is the most important thing for a writer to have.
0: Right. You know? Well, you know, it's um, like it's like an alien, it's like a stranger in a strange land uh, experience. Or, um, <clears throat> excuse me, like one of the things that, uh, one of the parallels that I've drawn as I've gotten older, just because I remember distinctly, like standing in the front yard of my house as like the movers were finishing, uh, you know, boxing up all of our belongings, was that mm-hmm. the, the moving company that we used was called Mayflower. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah but sure, i was I see like their trucks. yeah it's like it's like okay this is like really this really is like a uh, a miniaturization of some sort of like uh quintessential pilgrim experience when you move <laughs> you know like which again can sound kind of melodramatic but you're packing up everything you're going into this totally foreign territory um yep. you know nobody i guess you you do speak the language and you know you have some advantages but um i don't know
1: but you also have to weigh everything in this weird way you know it's you I literally sometimes, you know, like, do we need all these books? (laughs) These boxes are heavy, but, um, but also you you sort of look at all this stuff you've accumulated and you think, do I, you know, do I need this? And, and then you, you know, you have to look at it when you're packing and then you have to look at it when you're unpacking it. And, um, and that's, I mean, that's a real experience that can really sort of do a number on people depending on what they're, I mean, some people just don't give a shit about stuff like that, but I am not really one of those people. So no, we're getting ready to move. Yeah, I tough. think
0: We're getting ready to move again, and I'm getting ready to unload a bunch of stuff. I can't wait. I mm-hmm. I love doing it. Like I love just like calling purging. Yes, purging. Exactly. Yeah. Almost everything that I yeah. anything that I'm not using regularly goes. Uh, like I err on the side mm-hmm. of of getting rid of stuff, which makes my wife anxious, but I think it's a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, so we're opposite. So my wife is the way that you are. She loves purging stuff, um, and I have trouble letting go. But then I, I keep reminding myself, I've got a lot better about it, that there's almost nothing that I let go of that then I'm like, oh, where's that?
0: Oh, right, exactly.
1: Where's that baseball glove I had when I was 10 that doesn't fit? I probably need that. You know, it's just ne- It never happens.
0: Right. So. Well, no, I have this theory. It's like it, it, comes, it also comes down to, or uh, is related to spending money. Where it's like mm-hmm. when, you, when you think about what you want to spend money on, and like whether or not something's worth X amount of dollars, like I, I have this argument sometimes with friends of mine or with whoever, where I'm where I'm like, you know what, I will gladly pay top dollar for a pair of blue jeans. Like I don't care what it costs mm-hmm. because I know I'm going to yeah, yeah. wear them like three or, you know three days a week or whatever it is. You know, yep. um, anything that I use regularly uh, or I know I'm going to like get good use out of, great. But like I you know, you can look at all sorts of things in your life that you pay way too much for that you almost never use and that just wind up sitting in your closet or whatever. But um,
1: Yeah. But then when you see it. that thing when you see that thing, are you then like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that or you you just sort of shrug about it? No,
0: I just want to get rid Do of it. You beat
1: yourself up about it. Yeah. I I, oh it. yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: It's like it's like, you know, I I like the idea of just uh if if I don't use it regularly, somebody else might want to and they should have it. And if I if it's just sitting on my shelf collecting dust, I've talked about this on the show before with regard to books. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if, it, if if it's a book that's really important to me and that I use as a desk reference or that I want to return to over and over again, then, of course, I keep it. Um, but I don't want to collect and like fetishize and like amass this gigantic quantity of books. I'd rather have them out in the world circulating and being read by other people, you know.
1: That's much more
0: generous than I, am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, Yeah, I get anxious collecting stuff. I like to be able to travel light, but I don't, you know, if you looked at my office, it's like an avalanche of books waiting to happen. And uh, because it's yeah. the new year, uh, I'm getting ready to uh, do another purge. And last year, the purge was uh, so difficult physically for me that I wound up getting a hernia, uh, which I've also talked about. Oh. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to find a way to like get rid of all this stuff without having to lift it. <laughs> Uh, you
1: were purging all your sandbags or something? No, what gave you a me?
0: Of? No, it was like, I, you know, we live, uh, you know, in an upper, in an apartment building, and I had like these, mm. oh, okay. I, I just packed stupidly. I had these huge boxes of books that weighed like, yeah. you know, 250 pounds, and I didn't have a dolly, and I just thought I was a he-man. Oh. And, you know, it's sure. it's just the uh, stupidity. But uh, I wound up having surgery and the whole thing, and that's always like a, oh. a that's always a fun experience. Yeah. So uh anyway like to to get back to uh you know uh, your your youth and uh this move to sure. Albany which was sort of formative and um you know how you developed uh you know as a human being and and specifically as like a, a creative writerly human being like w- what were you doing in your adolescence like were you bookish uh like introspective uh, what were you like you know
1: yeah, I mean, I I think I was pretty quiet. Um, I liked jokes a lot. I've always liked comedy a lot, so I sort of had that. I was kind of a smartass, so, um, you know, I used to listen to Steve Martin records and stuff like that. Um, but I was pretty quiet, and I loved to read. Um, and my mom and I read aloud to each other until I was pretty old, probably embarrassingly old.
0: <laughs> until, if, um, until you were 26. You
1: correctly? <laughs> yeah. She's coming over tonight. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> but, you know, it's it's funny to hear you say that because that's another way we mirror one another. Like I got really – after the move especially, I got really intensely interested in comedy and used to buy uh, stand-up records and like memorize jokes. I used to read and memorize Blanche Knot's, uh joke books as a kid. I don't, mm-hmm. know, I don't know if you mm-hmm. – the Truly Tasteless joke books. I don't know if you ever read those.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember those. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's
0: another – I don't know. What, what does that mean? Like are we – uh I feel like we're cut from the same cloth, or something.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely. I I don't know. It's just looking for a way to make it seem okay. I mean, you know, right? It's it's like it's self-preservation. Just looking for a way to make it seem funny um, and just get some relief. Um, I still listen to comedy a lot. I mean, I think I would listen to it differently than I did then, but um, but yeah, I love that stuff. And I've always been a night owl, so I started watching like uh, Letterman and um, Saturday Night Live and and all that stuff when I was when I was really little.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, like I've had like a couple of thought. I mean, I'm still the same, you know, very uh, like a big fan of comedy. It's you know, of course, as you get older, like your understanding and enjoyment of it changes. But I still watch Saturday Night Live. And uh, yeah, me too. I just had this thought uh, recently about it that I might have tweeted where I was like, you know, I still watch this show. And it's, like, the only show on television that I watch uh, based on its its concept alone. Like, just the idea of it, I'm a fan mm-hmm. of. You know, because like, the show itself yep. so often, like, doesn't make me laugh. Uh, yeah. Or I'll just be like, this is a shitty episode and, like, these skits suck. But, like, I'm there almost every week. And yep. it's, like, because I'm such a fan of the idea of the show. And I don't think there's another show on television that I support in that way. It's a very, it's a very strange show
1: it is very strange and it's comforting I mean the way that the show is organized you know you always have the opening sketch then usually have the and you know then you have the monologue and then you usually have the fake commercial and then you know then the first performance by the musical act and then weekend update and then more sketches and then the second um the second performance and I remember a few years ago that they started having bands perform once once in a while and I like It freaked me out. I couldn't understand (laughs) what was happening. I'd be like, wait, what time is it? I was getting anxious for the bands, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like, I uh, I don't know. I feel like the season has been up and down. I think that the last episode was was, was a redeemer. I don't know if you saw it, but I felt like it kind of redeemed. Oh,
1: the Fallon and Timberlake?
0: Yeah, yeah. Those guys did it.
1: Yeah. I thought they did a good job, and I feel like the writers, um, I feel like they get up for people that they know can really do it, you know? Mm. Um, Like, when they have a good host, I feel like the writers are like, oh, yeah, and they can really sort of dig into stuff um, uh, and sort of raise their game up to a certain level. But, um, yeah, it's a little... Tough, I guess there's such a big turnover, but um, but it is one of those things that is really comforting, and I even found it that way when I was little. You know, well, um, sure.
0: Well, so did yeah. you did you ever uh, entertain ideas of getting into comedy or anything like that, like yourself?
1: No, <laughs> no, I don't like. You know, I'm I'm so nervous that I think the performance aspect of it never really um, never really appealed to me. Um, and people who know me but haven't read. The novel oftentimes think that it's probably funny. I have a friend, actually, who's a comedian, and he was describing to someone. He said, oh, yeah, my buddy's writing this book. I'm sure it's really funny. And I was sitting <laughs> right like, there, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <you're> <laughs> <that's> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, your book was yeah.
0: inspired, what, with, like the image that inspired your book was like, what, like a dead girl in the snow? <laughs>
1: like, yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. That's right. It's, the it's rife with comedic possibilities. It really is, just wide open. Like, there's so many ways mm-hmm. you can go with that, so. <laughs> so, okay, so, but uh, you you were looking to this stuff for relief, but you had no, like, you weren't nursing ambitions to get up on stage, and then in your yeah. writing, it, you tend to, at least so far, write uh, in a dramatic vein.
1: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I've written. I can write shorter stuff. That's that's funnier. And I think, and there are actually parts of of the kept that I think that I personally think are funny. But I think you know, no one would ever. Maybe if I was reading it out loud, they might recognize that the, the like the way I'm reading it, the beats of it. It's funny, but. Isn't it? There's that Carver, the Carver story, right? Elephant that um, that when he reads that when he read it out loud it was like a stand-up routine, like the way that it unfolds. Um, you know, it's about a phone call from a father to his son or something like that. And the way that it unfolds, if he, you know, was sort of doing it live, um, people would laugh and think it's hilarious. But if you read it over yourself, it's horrifying, you know? <laughs> right. Well, you know, there's, and there's, I, there's such yeah. a thing,
0: there's such a thing as a very specific sense of humor. I think that, yeah. you, know, you know, that's just, a, that's a thing. And sure. Uh, so when you, uh, you know, went off to college, uh, which you did, mm-hmm. correct? You got out of high school. You got out of Albany.
1: I did. Yeah, I did. I got out of Albany. What, was that- and I actually stayed, which was weird. I stayed, I didn't start college until, uh, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont and, um, they have a program there where kids start in February, about a hundred kids start in February and they accepted me for that program. And, um, And so I stayed in Albany. My parents had already moved back to Massachusetts and I stayed in Albany and worked in a home for adults with autism. Um, So it was a strange decision, I think, to stay, but I mean, I don't know, sort of once I get roots, I don't really want to leave places. So so what what you're telling
0: me is that you're going to be in Northampton for the rest of your life. It's
1: entirely possible. It's entirely possible. I don't know. I was in Boston for, I don't know, 13 years or something before I came here, so... um, so yeah, it's entirely possible. I could see it. I could see it happening.
0: Okay. And I'm also
1: I'm really close to the town, the town that I grew up in and I loved before we moved. Which um, which was so what? That's part of it too. What was? What was um, it? it's lo- It's called Longmeadow. It's outside Springfield.
0: Okay, um, right.
1: I've heard of. It's Long very Meadow. idyllic. Right. Yeah, there are a bunch of writers actually who are from Longmeadow. Interestingly, who? Uh, Chris Boucher, um, who is an editor at Post Road and who wrote um. How to keep your Volkswagen alive? Did you read that book?
0: No. Uh-uh.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, and then, uh, who else was I just thinking of? I'm totally drawing a blank. Yeah, you love when, but, I put, um, when I
0: put you on the spot.
1: <laughs> no, it's fine. Oh, Anita Shreve. Okay. Who you know um, was not <laughs> was not in my group of peers. I didn't play soccer with her, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, quite quite a few for such a small. Town,
0: so. Okay, so when did you ever get comfortable in Albany? Like, as I, it sounds like, you guess you did. If you stuck around for like that last semester and worked in this home or whatever, like, you found a way to assimilate. You were socially, were you socially uh, okay as a as a youth?
1: Um, you know, it, at times I think I would go through phases where I'd feel comfortable, and then I mean, I'm sure all teenagers are this way. I'd feel comfortable for a while, and then I would sort of withdraw and sort of do my own thing. And, um, and yeah, you know, I mean, I had periods of time where I would sort of like lose all my friends for one reason or another. And then, um, and then I would kind of be on my own for a bit and then, you know, I'd find new people. Um, and I was sort of tra I guess I was also sort of like trapped between groups cause I was in all those smart kid classes, but then my friends were mostly, um, for the most part, I think they weren't in those classes. I just thought they were the most interesting people. So, um, so I think that, I don't know, that sort of affected things too, was sort of being pulled back and forth. but
0: you you were singled out as a bright child from a young age.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was in, um, there was an amazing, um, program for gifted kids when I was in, um, gifted sounds so ridiculous, but, um, yeah, in Massachusetts, I was in this amazing program with an incredible teacher, um, mrs williams i should probably know her first name but i don't think i ever used it (laughs) when i was a kid so uh mrs williams yeah we go to the high school once a week and first part was doing logic puzzles and stuff like that and the second part they would just sort of release us into this really nice library and we would just do research on our own topics um which was incredible
0: yeah that sounds great
1: was fantastic
0: so what were you what were you researching back in the day what were your
1: (laughs) oh (laughs) really happy things um i did one on the vietnam war um i did a lot i did a lot of war stuff the vietnam war um the french and indian war um gosh what else did i do oh um jet planes for some reason um it's funny And then you'd sort of give these little presentations.
0: Well that's no, it's funny that you say that like that you were really into war and like thinking about war when you were like what, fifteen years old? Like taking on these like really No, oh, no,
1: no, no. I was seven or eight. Oh, you were that young? Yeah, yeah. This was before we moved. This is before we moved. Um Oh my god, so I, yeah, was th- I was I was thinking I was you were really like little.
0: a a teenager being loosed into a high school library. You were eight years old in a high school library doing research? Independent study? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yeah, independent studies. And we have these little folders that we all do it. We, I remember we all thought these folders were so silly because they had this like really ridiculous drawing on the front, and then you know I was taking notes on you know like the Mylai massacre and stuff inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Jesus kind of like dude. you know Max Fisher and Rushmore or something. It was yeah. just
0: sort of um,
1: inappropriate.
0: Okay, so did you ever have like you know uh, did you ever have uh, I guess with these panic attacks you said you weren't doing a lot of drugs or drinking or anything because that would exacerbate. Is that correct? Like, so you didn't have that phase as an adolescent in a really acute way.
1: Oh, no, I had those phases. Um, but yeah, it definitely made things a lot worse. It still does. I mean, it still does. When I go to AWP or something and I'm, you know, tend to drink more often, it makes, and, and also just sort of like being among all these people and being in a strange place. Usually it really heightens that, anxiety and the alcohol doesn't help. But, well, it does help at the time. But right. then as soon as it's over, it makes it much worse.
0: And well, AWP could give anybody a panic attack. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes.
1: like yeah, what, no it's, it's I think everyone's walking around thinking they're dying. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. Everyone is seconds away from their heart exploding at AWP somehow. But
1: <laughs> Yep.
0: Um, but, okay, so then you get to Middlebury and – um are you uh, like an english major that's your track you you know you're going to be a writer then
1: yeah yeah i went to i remember going for a visit there and walking into the admissions house and seeing all the like faculty books on the shelves um all the you know the stacks and stacks of books that the faculty had written and just thinking oh yeah this is this is where i got to be um and i knew about breadloaf you know the writers conferences is, is um you know, affiliated with the college and, in that too. Um, and so what I did is I ended up studying film and English because that was the way I could take the most creative writing classes.
0: Ah, okay. So you had a double, double major in film and English. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, when, so this book that you, uh, are just publishing took you eight years to write. Um, like, and how old are you? Do you mind if I ask?
1: I don't mind, but I'm 36 years old.
0: Okay. So, um, like, get us from Middlebury to there somehow. You know, like, like what were you writing when you were in college? How did you, like, first start to um, approach, uh, you know, creative writing uh, as a, like, day-to-day thing and develop a habit and everything else?
1: Yeah, I think I, in college, I was writing sort of, Weird short stories in class, and then on my own, I was working on full-length screenplays and novels, um, and and I went to Breadloaf as an undergraduate, um, and kind of had a tough time. I think just because I was so young, um, but it really did make me feel like that's what I wanted to do, and I really saw sort of like what a career as a writer could mean
0: well who are you who um, are you there with did you have any like shining stars that were in attendance that you got to like sort of learn from and sit at the foot of
1: the the biggest person for me was was Margo Livesey, um who and actually that's i ended up going to emerson college for my mfa and she she's the reason i went um because i was having a tough time i was in a great workshop i was in a great workshop with uh with tom Allen and um, Jinta Lahiri was my, was like a fellow. So she just had one book out and then, um, and there are a lot of great writers in, in my workshop. Um, but it was, it was just tough. I mean, it was just hard. I, I'd, I'd never been critiqued like that before. I'd never seen other people critiqued sort of in that way before, even though I'd taken workshops in college, just had a different tenor to it.
0: Like, well, and in what, in um, and what, what were you talking? Was it like really harsh or very like blunt? Yeah,
1: it was just harsher. Yeah, just yeah. It's more blunt. There's a lot less sort of of the. Um, I know what you're going for here, but maybe you should think <laughs> about this. You know, and it was more like this should not be there. You should cut this out. Um, and I was sitting on the steps of the barn, um, where the classes, where some of the classes are held, and and Margot just came up and sat down next to me. I wasn't in her workshop. I had you know nothing to do. Um, you know, I'd never met her before and she just came down, sat next to me because it was obvious I was having a hard time. And she, you know, she's one of the most generous people I've ever met. And she just sat down next to me and talked to me about stuff. And, and I felt so much better. And I also thought, well, if writing, you know, if writing as a career can produce something like this, then that's something that I should pursue and aspire to. um, it was really incredible. And then... Wait, what do you mean? Um, like, if, that can, first, if it
0: can produce something like this, you mean if it can produce that kind of generosity of spirit?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and also, and just sort of, if you can have the power at that point to sit down with someone for absolutely no reason who you've never met before and you can change their outlook completely. Um, you know, I never, I never had anything like that. I've had teachers who are kind of supportive of me, um, and maybe it was because I always knew it was what I wanted to do so it, or something, but I'd never had someone who really sort of took me aside and, you know, sort of told me what was what in a way that was that generous.
0: So, yeah. So what did she say? Can you remember?
1: Not really. <laughs> excuse me. Not really specifically. Um, I mean, I think she just started off by, you know, by asking me a lot of questions. I mean, I think that's sort of the most generous thing that you can do. And she just asked me what I was writing and what I was there for and how my workshop was going and what kind of stuff I was working on, who I like to read, um, and, you know, and then it was sort of more general stuff about, you know, um, you know, she was saying, you know, breadloaf can be hard for lots of people, but, you know, writers' conferences can be hard for a lot of people. And, um, and so a lot of it was sort of reassuring. And then she told me that she taught at Emerson, which sort of is what put that in my mind. Um, so it was a lot of just listening, I think. And I think that was actually one of the big problems being there, being so young, is that I didn't feel like people were listening to me at all.
0: Well, right. How, you Not were, I should
1: have, were, yeah.
0: were you 20 years old? How old were you?
1: Yeah, I think I was 21, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure I was 21, I don't think um, I
0: don't think I even knew what bread loaf was until I was like thirty. <laughs> so you're you know you're, you're you're in good you're in a good spot if you're there at that age I think.
1: Yeah, and then it only took fifteen more years to <laughs> figure the rest of it out. Well, yeah.
0: Well, it's, and it sounds like too. So like, whatever it, it sounds like sounds like Margot had uh, in addition to being like a uh, you know empathetic and kind. She also had like a good sense of timing, you know, that was like she sat yeah. down she sat down next to you just when you needed someone like that to sit down next to you.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not to be melodramatic, but it was, you know, I'm not religious at all, but it was like an angel, you know, I mean, it was just sort of exactly when I needed it. Like, just like you said, yeah, this person just sat down next to me and sort of said, here, let me. Tell you how all these things are, make you feel better. You're like um,
0: she's like you're not doing it wrong. Everyone's miserable here.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, the first part, yes. The second part, maybe not quite so much, but the first part definitely.
0: Um, okay. Um, so now how, and then, so how soon after you got done with undergrad were you off to Emerson for your MFA?
1: N- it wasn't for another. It wasn't for a while. So that was in ninety ninety eight or ninety nine, and then. Um, And then I wrote on my own. I worked for a literary agency. I did a bunch of sort of small jobs. Oh, the other thing that Margot told me at that time, actually, that was really important to me, is she said, figure out the time when you write best and then get a job that doesn't happen during those hours. Um, And I took that very seriously. Um, So when when do you write best? Late at night, (laughs) fortunately. Um, So... Yeah, so all the graveyard shifts were, were not open to me, um, but it did mean—I mean, it did mean that I couldn't be like a bartender or waiter or that kind of stuff, um, which was fine. Um,
0: I think I write best at like noon. <laughs> I'm so screwed, <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> As I get older, as I get older, actually, it, it's sort of like moving up and up. Um, but also for me, it's—I write new stuff better late at night. But editing, I have to do during the day. Like the new stuff, I need my sort of internal editor to go to sleep. And then once he or she is gone, I can be like, okay, now he's gone. And so I'm not censoring myself, and I can just sort of let you know, let new stuff flow. Right. Um, but the editing stuff is, you know, I really need to have my faculty sort of, so that's like a morning or afternoon activity.
0: Okay. So uh, so you said you worked at a literary agency.
1: I did, yeah. Doing what? Um Uh, Reading manuscripts, mostly. Um, I read, I read manuscripts and I read um, film scripts and I read book properties for film potential.
0: Okay. And was this in New York or was this in Boston or?
1: It was in Boston. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you were in Boston. After you left Middlebury, you went to Boston?
1: Pretty much. Yeah. I stayed behind for a bit and wrote for a newspaper for like a weekly and then uh, for a little while. And then I came down to Boston.
0: Okay, with the idea that you were eventually going to go to Emerson, or was that still something that hadn't, like, uh, you know, materialized?
1: No, I didn't think I needed to. (laughs) I thought that I could figure it out. I thought I could figure it out. And then I wrote one novel that I spent a bunch of time on and, like, really sent to agents and stuff like that, and it didn't get any traction. And then I wrote another one, and I finished it, and I thought, uh, you know this this isn't working i need I need some help um and so I went back to breadloaf actually in two thousand four, and that was a real game changer like that was that okay my who sat life.
0: who sat down next to you this time
1: uh lots of people actually this time I was much more popular so <laughs> um yeah, I was in daniel wallace um was my workshop. Leader and he just led this like really friendly, wonderful workshop. And um, he hated my story, but um, but he led a really great workshop. And my um, my fellow was Hannah Tinty, who's also wonderful, just really amazing and generous. And um, and I think even that was two thousand four. There are probably ten or so people that I met at that conference that I still talk to on a regular basis.
0: Okay. So good. Um, it was a good group.
1: Yeah, it was a great group. Um, and I met, um, yeah, I met a lot of people um, and I met Laura Vandenberg there. And so when, so then that was, that was so good. And then I thought, you know, I need to do this on a, you know, for more than 10 days. And so I applied to MFA programs and I, um, and I got in Temerson which is where Margo was which was the big draw for me.
0: Okay so was that the big takeaway from the second stint at Breadloaf was that you realized you needed um if not like you know an MFA per se but at least the community that an MFA provides and the constant critique yes. and the and the creative structure or and and also the safe harbor you know a place to go hide out and write because like where else are you can Exactly.
1: Get Right. So, being yeah, being at a conference like that is. Have you done any of them?
0: No, I haven't. I I find myself getting uh, anxious thinking about them, but maybe I shouldn't. You know?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, they are. You know, as one of the you know princes of anxiety, I will say that they are very anxiety inducing. But um, but they're incredible. I mean, you go to this place for ten days, and everyone who's there cares as much about the thing you care about most as you do, you know? So it's just right. sort of magic world. It's, and, and I wanted an extension of that, you know, I needed to do that, um, for, for like a, a more extended period of time. And so, um, and that was, that was my thought and my thinking and going to an MFA program. And I also knew there was stuff that I just couldn't figure out on my own. Like what? You know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, Plot and story, especially because i 'd done a lot of screenwriting and stuff like that, that stuff all came very naturally to me structure and that sort of stuff, but line by line was tougher for me, and i couldn 't really figure out how people did it and um, and i didn 't know how to revise properly.
0: How you know? do you revise um, properly? I mean what is it you know, like what have, what have you learned in the interim that got you to where your books and uh, this beautiful new hardcover edition with all these, uh, you know, glowing blurbs and everything. Like, what What did you learn? Is it, is it possible to articulate?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's possible for me to articulate. I think everyone sort of takes the pieces of what they learn and they sort of figure out what works for them and, and you know, sort of apply it that way. But there actually was a class at Emerson called Revision, and... Um, And we'd come in every week, I think, with a new draft and, you know, you had a a partner and they would literally cut your story into pieces, um, sort of scene by scene and hang it up on the wall. Um, And for me, I'd always sort of, I guess, I'd always sort of been taught that, you know, this very romantic notion that a story is this thing that sort of pours out of your soul and it comes out sort of, of a piece. And then when you change it, you sort of change words here and words there. And so it was more like, you know, that that famous apocryphal story about, um about on the road, just being like dumped on the desk right. Um, right. at FSG. It was just like this scroll, but then he, you know, he edited this for like years and years after that. So, um, I think we, but we have that notion that that's how it works. It's so and- it's so
0: fun to believe that, you know. And it's like there's a there's another uh, apocryphal like publishing story that people hang on to, which is that like, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was like written on some sort of like you know like monumental bender. Um, but right. when you dig into the literary history, it was like one of like the few like sustained and and also you know on the road was written uh, in relative sobriety for for by men right. by men who were who were rarely sober, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's funny that the truth is always, you know, uh, different than uh, the legend, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that, and it's such a romantic idea. And I think that the idea that it's magical is so much, so much nicer to believe than it's actually just a lot of hard work. Um, and so seeing, so I went from seeing it as this sort of like scroll to seeing it as, you know, bricks in a wall, just these pieces that you could take out and reassemble and shuffle around and demolish and um well, and, think, and that was the biggest thing for me.
0: Well, no, and I think too like this is a part of it that I still struggle with is that when you have like a piece of writing and it can be a piece of writing that you think is is strong and that, you know, uh, on its own as a brick to kind of continue that metaphor, you can think that it's uh, structurally sound and uh, well built mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but it doesn 't fit, and it doesn 't serve the uh, the larger structure, and so you have to it has to go or it has to be like right. broken up into smaller components and reconfigured into a different brick or whatever and that yeah. act like that nice act, brick yeah it 's a nice brick, but it 's got to go you know and right. the that act um, it's not so much because they always say you have to, you know, you have to kill your babies or whatever. Uh, yeah. You have to lose the sentimentality and and you know just cut stuff that doesn't serve the the greater purpose. I don't think that it's that. I don't think it's sentimentality that makes writers blanch. I think it's the 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 um, realization that like oh shit, this is going to be a lot of work. That's what I think, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's what really makes people, makes people freeze up or resist because they're like, Oh man, you mean I got to break all this up? That means I've got to like clean up this mess, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think too, that when you have that, that brick that you love so much, there, you know, the other part of it is to, and, um, and Jim Shepard, who's an amazing teacher, um, I had for a workshop and he really encouraged um, all of us to think this way is that you, if you have that brick and it seems like it sort of doesn't fit the rest of the wall, but you love it and you don't want to get rid of it, well, then figure out why you love it so much and then make the rest of the wall fit that brick, I mean, which is way more work. But if that's how you feel about it, if you love it that much, then... Well, that's and, what you have to do.
0: Well, it's no, also like, you know, uh, I love how we're just continuing to just talk about these bricks. But th- that, brick <laughs> it, that brick could also wind up being a short story that's unrelated or it could be a continuation. Mm-hmm. Or it could become something else. You never know how it's going to manifest, you know?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of us have that file on our computers or whatever. That's the stuff that's been tough to cut. Right. And you think you'll go back to it at some point. And I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever looked at my file that way.
0: Well, I always have, whenever I'm working on a project, I'll have like, the, like the name of the project will be the name of the file. And then I'll, I'll, I'll have like a, a, you know, a tandem file that'll be called like name of the project cuts. And I'll just have like, you know, you'll just do dumps when you're doing editing or, you know, you wake up, in mm-hmm. the mor- you wake up in the morning or you go back to it the next day or the next, den- you know, next night in your case. And you go, Holy shit, this is terrible. This needs to go. and. Or whatever, yeah. you know, and then you just cut it. And but I don't get rid of it. I always dump it into the cuts uh, file in case, like, I have a change of heart, or in case there's something that's worth, um, you know, salvaging later on, which almost never happens. But it's nice to it's nice to keep it there just in case. There is an instance.
1: It does where, sometimes
0: happen. It does, and and there is an instance where yeah. I'm not inclined to purge. There is an instance where I'm a pack rat. I do save all of my ri- <laughs> writing garbage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay. So you're at Emerson, this is like, you know, Valhalla you're having, uh, and that's, that's the correct use of Valhalla, right? I think so.
1: I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um,
0: Doesn't that mean like some sort of like heaven or haven, but, um, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're in a good spot. You're starting to work. Is this where you're starting to work on, uh, the kept or did that start earlier?
1: Yes. No, that started pretty much right. As soon as I started at Emerson.
0: So you and you had already um, du- and you had already written two full novels that didn 't go
1: yeah i mean i'd written i 'd written more than that, but i'd written two that I could take seriously in sort of any capacity okay so um,
0: how did your how did your temperament and your uh you know anxious tendencies uh mesh with these uh you know novels that had to be uh stuck in the drawer? Like what was that process like that? You know, that moment where you sort of like realize this isn't going to work or I've got to like start over. Like how did you deal with those moments?
1: I think the one that I, the one that I wrote that I really sent out to agents and editors and stuff like that, that was, that was tough. Like that was a, that was a really hard one for me to deal with. And I think, you know, the only thing that sort of got me over it is starting another one. Um, which now, I mean, now that would be the time I would go back and I would revise it, because that's, I think, what I was sort of feeling. I never would now because it's awful, but um, the the bricks are all terrible and they're awful, But um, hard. <laughs> but I think the the second one that I wrote and I looked at it and I, I mean, I really did sort of something inside me realize, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to do this. I can't, I can't make this what I want it to be. and So I have to go learn that somewhere. And that was easier, I think, because it led someplace,
0: Well, but no, but it's interesting because you're basically saying that you went to an MFA program and learned how to write a book. And like, you know, there are some people, I mean, is that what you're saying? Because there are some people who say, you know, you can't teach people how to write and, um, you know, but it sounds like you got whatever you needed in that, uh, environment.
1: Yeah. Without question, without question. I mean, I, I definitely would not have been able to write this book without having gotten Emerson. and, Without the peer group I found there, without that revision class, with, um, which is taught by Pamela Painter, um, I would feel really bad if I didn't give her credit because I think all of us who went there used some form of her revision technique. What is her, um, what
0: is her technique? And, you know, by the way, when you said that there's a class called revision, um, mm-hmm. I, the thought that, that occurred to me that I didn't say is that why is there not one of these classes in every writing program? Maybe there is. I
1: don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And, and sometimes they wouldn't offer at Emerson, and I wouldn't understand why that was the case. And um, and one of my good friends at Emerson, we encouraged Pam. We were like, "You should write a textbook on this because it's it's not that hard. Like the concepts, the concepts aren't that difficult. It's just really is, you know, that thing you were talking about earlier, where you have that realization, like, oh shit, this is going to be so much work, <laughs> and you just have to, you just then have to do it." Um, and so, yeah, it's the it's cutting it apart into scenes and hanging it up on the wall, and really looking at looking at it scene by scene. And you can and just literally that act of physically hanging it up on the wall or spreading it on the floor. You realize, you know, oh, this scene is way too long. Why am I going on on about this? Or this scene is too short. Or I'm missing something here. Or this should go at the beginning and all that stuff. And you can really physically move it around. Um,
0: that sounds that sounds sort of screenwriterly. That's something that I feel like is more is done more often in screenwriting.
1: It is a bit, yeah, I mean, because it's it is because it's more of a big picture thing. and you know the less um, the less I worry about sort of line by line early on, the better off I'm gonna be because for a long time they're just placeholders. Um, I think that that's actually what what Margot used to tell us, like that the language is a placeholder. And so don't worry about refining it too, too much until you get everything in the right place. And then you have to lock down a language. Um, And so then, yeah, so then you'd hang it on the wall and you'd sort of, you know, write a, you know, an index card or whatever that says there's a missing scene here where he, you know, discovers that his dad is, you know, his dad cheated on his mom or whatever. And then, and then you sort of put all those pieces in a pile and then you just rewrite it from those pieces.
0: Like you, do you rewrite it from, Do you rewrite it? Yeah. I mean, but do you rewrite it from scratch or do you go back to the original file and work that original file?
1: No, don't go back to the original file. Oh, interesting. Um, because the other thing too, is that every time, every time you retype, you know, you sort of, you're making those decisions about language again mm-hmm. and what you should really salvage and what, you know, what should go. So you're, so by rewriting it, you're sort of, re, you know, you're sort of starting yeah. that process, which is the next thing, you know, it's what I do next. So.
0: Wow. Okay. So, um, you're at Emerson, is that a two year program?
1: Uh, it depends, depends on who you are. <laughs> um, I know some people who've been there for four or five years. Um, I finished, I think in two and a half and then a lot of people finished in three.
0: Okay. And, but this book took you eight years to write. Yes. So you finished in two and a half, and had some version or some beginning of it as you le- as you walked out the door, and then continued to write mm-hmm. the rest of it. Is it? Yeah, so?
1: it was my it was my thesis project. Um, so I think I had maybe 150 pages of it, and then I think the first draft ended up being maybe 500, um, and then I kind of and then I just revised and revised and. Um And I got an agent in the middle of that process somewhere how did you get um, How did
0: you get your agent?
1: Um I had a friend who well i'd only ever heard really great things about him um and everything that I heard it seemed like a fit and so I asked a friend who was represented by him. I was trying to <laughs> trying to finish a draft and i thought if I talked to some of my friends and I had this to look forward to, if I had a list of agents that I could send it to when I was done with this draft, that that could sort of spur me on. And so I talked to this friend and I said, Hey, what do you think about your agent? And you know, do you think that you'd be willing to talk to him at some point? And I was more just gathering information. This was around Thanksgiving maybe. And then my friend was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I love him. Here's what I think. And you who, who totally your pursue him. who's your agent? Who's uh, your agent? His name's PJ Mark.
0: Okay. Yeah. 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 Sure.
1: At Django uh, and Nesbitt. he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Um, and and so this this friend of mine wrote me around Christmas, and he said, "PG hasn't heard from you. Like I, you know, I I talk to him all about you, and he just hasn't heard anything." And I, you know, I said, "I'm just gathering information at this." time but uh, so I contacted him and he agreed to just read the first 50 pages which were the pages I really felt comfortable with because um, I'd, I'd only ever approached one other agent um, or she'd approached me actually and she told me that it was unpublishable
0: always um, always a nice thing to hear
1: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. it's a real dream come true um, she sat down next and, to me uh, yeah, she said, you know what this is unpublishable <laughs> Um, and so, and that made me pretty gunshot. I mean, I kept working on it, but <laughs> pardon me, but it knocked me, it knocked me back to have someone say something like that to me. And so I told him I'd only send him the first 50 pages and he said that was great. And, um, and he really liked it and we got on the phone and, um, and everything that he said was, you know, incredibly smart and were things that I'd never even thought of, which, um, which was a real gift, and uh, and he and I end up editing the book together pretty much for almost three years, just, you know, the, the two of us. And I had other people, you know, I had friends and stuff, read it in the meantime, so I didn't constantly bombard him with new drafts. But, um, and you know, we'd talk and he'd tell me the things that were wrong and then, you know, that were, that were not quite working, and then I would go back and I would do what he said, and then, um, you know, I'd try to push it farther than what,
0: he'd said. Um, so, okay. And you know, you were able to temper your um, desire to get this thing out into the world. Like you were patient, like eight years is a long time to work on a project and you know, like you, yeah. work, but you like, are you temperamentally uh, wired so that like, it's way more important to you that you get everything exactly perfect or at least, you know, from yes. your, that's how you are. Okay. Yeah. I think some, I Although think some there are,
1: was a time, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, there was a time where, I was working on the book and I think PJ and I had gone back and forth a few times and I was talking to a friend on the phone. That I was just having problems, you know, with the book and, um, and I called him up and without even thinking about it. I said, I'm afraid to finish. And I'd never thought about it and it just sort of popped out. And I realized that that, that that was true. It was very true that I was scared to finish. Um, you know, if you don't finish, you don't have to face the rejection part. Right, <laughs> so right. I think that that's, I think that that's what it was. And, and I am a perfectionist. So there's always stuff like, you, know, you can always go back and, and tinker. Um, sure. But it really was just, I was afraid, especially after spending so long in it, this was probably, you know, six, six or seven years into the process. You know what if I spent all that time and and everybody hated it you know <laughs> that, right. and that fear that fear really I think controlled me for you know for longer than than it should have and without me even realizing it so
0: well how did you finally break out of the fear which is by saying it and recognizing that it was controlling you
1: yep yeah, yeah exactly
0: yeah okay so then what finally you get the thing done and then t- t- tell me about the sales process
1: Um. Well, uh, uh, luckily for me, that part was pretty painless. I mean, it was stressful. It was really stressful. Um, but it was fast. Um, and, uh, and I think I had so much confidence in PJ that, 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 you know, I had that sort of backbone and when he said it was ready, I really believed him. And, um, and so he sent it out and he sent it out on a Tuesday afternoon. I was just looking at these emails, actually. He sent it out on Tuesday afternoon. I got an email from him around 3.30 and the email just said, and we're off. And I didn't even think about it. I thought, you know, I'd had other friends and it had been a long process. And so I just sort of said, oh, okay. And I didn't, you know, for probably self-defense reasons, I didn't think about it too much. And then, he called me the next morning. I was on my way to my therapist, actually, and um, I was walking out the door, and I got a call from him. and He said, "Hey, can you talk to an editor?" and um, And it was so, it was just sort of so so out of left field because I hadn't even started to process it. And I, so I said, "About what?" It never crossed my mind that they would already be calling to talk to me about the manuscript.
0: Um, wow! And who? And was this the? It, is this the? Um editor at Harper that you went with or was this somebody else
1: It It is. It wasn't, it wasn't. Okay. Um, it was someone, I mean, I, I was really, really lucky to get to talk to a bunch of editors and they were all amazing and super helpful and really encouraging, which was great. I mean, they, obviously they, they thought there were things that needed to be changed and needed to be done. Um,
0: Well, that's the thing, though, is that you hear from these editors that if you're lucky enough to get a a sales process like that where, you know, there's multiple parties of interest is that you get to gauge um, the way that they're reading the book. And like as a writer, if you find somebody, you know, even even if and especially if they have critiques of the book that resonate with you somehow, even if it's going to require more work and more bricks, you know, that's that's part of that obviously factors into your decision.
1: Yeah, absolutely and if and if their vision sort of matched my vision, that was the biggest thing. Um was if the things they were saying really sort of um rang true with me. And um and yeah, I mean, fortunately a lot of what they said really rang true and really sort of resonated with me and I thought, yeah, that's, you know, that's right. Um and then it was a question of sort of figuring out who I thought I could get along with personally, and did you um, did
0: you go to New York and like have face to face meetings with people, or was this all over the phone?
1: No, it happened so fast I didn't really have time to go, <laughs> so I just I talked to them over the phone, yeah, and you know it's about an hour a piece. I think I mean it's you know like again, they were super super generous, and so we just sort of talked about stuff, and I think you know they wanted to feel me out and realize you know see if, how crazy I was and um
0: <laughs> you were able if to... they
1: could work with me. Yeah, I was able to know them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of them
0: yeah. you seemed fine over uh, the phone. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was really, it and, was stressful. I mean, it was stressful having to sort of decide. The conversations were stressful to some extent, but
0: were you, was there an auction?
1: Uh, there was, yeah.
0: Okay. So you had to go through. That's fun. That's good. That seems like the like the dream scenario for the sales process. But I think that you did all of the slogging over the course of eight years on the front end to sort of set yourself up for that.
1: That's what I told myself. That's what I continue to tell myself. Yeah. I mean, it was – I didn't even dare dream. I, I, I literally had never even thought of that. The whole thing, honestly, um, and I mean this sincerely, has just been – a huge surprise to me. I thought I'd be really lucky if one editor was really interested in, and thought about it in the same way that I did and, and sort of got it. And, um, and, and then it turned out that a whole lot of people had a lot to say about it. And it was, it was really incredible. Well, it really incredible
0: it's an auspicious beginning and, uh, I congratulate you on it. And, uh, this must be an exciting time with the thing, you know, making its way out into the world. I certainly wish you the best. And, uh, thank you so I much. Th- thank you for uh, taking the time to talk, and and Happy New Year.
1: Thanks, Brad. Happy New Year
0: to you, too. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That's James Scott. Go get his novel. Help uh, help this young man launch his career. This young man. He's basically my age. This. Uh, the book is called The Kept. Not that I'm not young. I'm just saying. I don't want me to sound paternal, James. Am I over-explaining things again? His uh, novel is called The Kept, It is published by Harper... You can find James online on the Facebook, and uh, his official website is jamesscottwriter.com. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the official Other People app, the official app of this program. It is the very best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. Uh, You can also download episodes to listen to offline Uh, And, best of all, you can access the full archives and uh, all premium content via the app. So, go get the app. And, uh, hey, sign up for premium. It's two bucks a month. Two bucks a month. And you can listen to the full archives. You have access to everything. You can hear me talk to a wide range of uh, writers, including folks like George Saunders, Jess Walter, uh, Cheryl Strayed, Ben Fountain, Sam Lipsight, Tao Lin, Sheila Hetty, Roxane Gay, Mira Gonzalez, and uh, many more. Okay? So... Uh, hey, it's a new year. It's a new year. It's a clean slate. Do I have a resolution? Not really. I, I don't. You know, I tweeted this today. I don't make resolutions. I don't think I've ever really made a resolution, like one single resolution. I think my general resolution uh, seems to be sort of ongoing. It's a continuing resolution. It involves like meditating. I feel like that's sort of embarrassing. It shouldn't be embarrassing to admit that. That's big for me. That seems to be foundational for my particular brand of sanity. And uh, also, another part of this uh, continuing resolution is to consume less and to consume uh, in a wiser manner. That's it. I feel like consumption's a problem, which I have uh, spoken of before. All of this consumption. I want to travel light in my life. I want to leave a light footprint. Uh, I have a kid, and I feel like, you know, uh, 70 years from now, 100 years from now, uh, the planet could be in a uh, particularly bad state. Not that it's in a perfect uh, condition right now, but, uh, you know, at the very least, I don't want to be a huge part of the problem. I don't want my daughter and uh, any future descendants to look back on my life and think to themselves, what a moron, what an asshole. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to avoid. Maybe it's impossible, but I'm trying to avoid it. Please remember that Christina Rossetti died while praying and that Jean-Paul Sartre... Is it Sartre or Sartre? What's the... uh, Sartre? I can't do that, you know? I want to pronounce it correctly, but that's difficult for me. Uh, That Jean-Paul Sartre... Jean-Paul Sartre was blind when he died. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. And, uh, hey, thanks for making December of uh, 2013 the best month in the history of the show. Are there really that many of you out there? I'm looking at these numbers. We're breaking records every month, and I'm wondering, is this real? Uh, Whatever the case, thanks for spreading the word. I really appreciate it. Thanks for telling people about the show. Thanks for rating it, reviewing it. Uh, Thanks for sending letters. Thanks for listening. Just thank you. (laughs) It's always awkward here at the end of the show. I will talk to you soon. Thanks to James Scott. Uh, Thanks to uh, my parents. Thanks to my family. (laughs) Should I, should I start thanking God at the end of every show uh, in the manner that uh, athletes do after victories? Uh, I owe it all to Jesus. My podcast would not exist but for the man upstairs uh, or the, the woman upstairs. Whatever your uh, druthers happen to be. I, you know, monotheism. It's difficult for me to do that. Perhaps as it should be. Uh, or I guess maybe I can do monotheism if you mean that everything is uh, connected it's all one somehow but the problem with everything being one of course is that that means there's just one <laughs> there's that's so lonely you know we're all one and we are alone fuck